0: This is Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is agroecology scientist, farmer and author, Anika Molesworth. I'm here with Anika Molesworth, the author of Our Sunburnt Country, which is available in all good bookstores now. Anika, thank you for joining us on Minimal today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Jim. Uh, I just wanted to start off first of all, congratulations on your book. I very much enjoyed it. And I wanted to ask you, before we get into the nitty gritty of the book, what is your writing process? I wanted to geek out on on that a little bit uh, before we get started. Are you a get up early in the morning kind of a person and churn through pages, or are you big on outlines? What's your process?
1: Well, I mean, it was very much a learning experience for me because this was my first book. And so I sort of learnt on the fly. But my process was during writing to get up early. I go for, every morning, I go for about an hour long walk into the paddock with my dog, see the sunrise. And I think, you know, during that sort of meditative, walk um, out there in the natural world i'm sort of mulling over ideas of what i want to put on paper that day and then i get to the computer and i am i'm solid at the computer until you know mid-afternoon and then by that time you know my brain is fried, (laughs) and yeah (laughs) get back out into the paddock
0: beautiful area to write you know imagine is that silverton broken hill area or am i off the mark there
1: no, that's right. So, yes, far western New South Wales, so beautiful Williakali country. It's red sands as far as you can see, sapphire blue skies, and it's a very inspiring landscape to be in um, and
0: to write about. I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, with that in place, let's get into the uh, the, the nitty-gritty of the book. One of your uh, profound statements that I took away from it was that climate change effectively – uh, affects every plate that we eat from agriculture uses this is your from your book agriculture uses 75% of the water extracted from nature and generates 30% of the greenhouse gas emissions so based on that um, your whole philosophy towards agriculture is to change the narrative around how we produce if I'm not mistaken
1: Yeah, so the conversation around climate change in agriculture is a complex but such an important one to have for those reasons that you've just stated in that the farming and food system has such a unique story in that it is one of the major contributors to the problem of climate change in terms of the emissions we release, uh, the the natural resources we use to produce food and fibres, We're also, you know, one of the most vulnerable and exposed sectors to the impacts of climate change because farmers live and work so closely with the natural world. We are some of the first to feel the true impacts of, you know, changing rainfall, uh, you know, seasons, temperatures. And then thirdly, we are one of the most critical and important pieces in solving this problem. So, you know, the way that we can sequester carbon, the changes that we can make in the food system play such a huge role in getting on top of the climate crisis.
0: Absolutely. Early in the book, um, you kind of lay, lay down a parallel between Australia now and Australia uh, World War Two e- uh, era, uh, in that you know w- there was uh, there was an encouragement of the of the populace to be self sufficient with their food, um, and it was an offshoot from the Great Depression, uh, and it, and it was to deal really with the breakdown in supply chains. And and, and but since that time, you know, we've had a never ending sense of, of never ending supply chains. Uh, certainly during my lifetime, is that a narrative that needs to be changed drastically in a shorter period of time?
1: Yeah, I think so. And this was something that I was reflecting on during writing, was comparing my grandmother's upbringing and respect for food and some of the values that she was instilling in me at quite a young age. As you say, because she had experienced you know, that World War II era, the Depression, uh, there was a time of crisis and breakdown in the food system. And so there was such an appreciation of Food, respect for food, um, you know, conscious consumption, um, minimal waste of dog food. But then fast forward to today where we do have such an abundance, you know, such a luxury to walk into shops and see good quality uh, and quantity of food available that we've kind of lost that respect for food. And this is something that I think we really need to work on as a society is to reinvigorate that that respect and understanding of food, you know, to know that that came from the natural world, you know, resources went into that time labor and the way that we then interact with our food has a very real, um, flow and effect to the larger, you know, social and environmental conditions that we face.
0: Completely. And it's really timely. Uh, later in the book, you ref- you referenced COVID-19. I'm not sure what the timelines were between your, your writing process and, and the actual pandemic taking place. But you mentioned that the first time that Australians really experienced food shortages on supermarket shelves, at least in the modern times, was during the crisis. Um, exactly. W- yeah.
1: That's right. So another time of crisis, you know, the the moment that we're living through now, um, you know, definitely in those, those early months of when COVID really started to escalate here in Australia, and there was that panic buying, and people were going into the supermarket, and oh my goodness, like, there is actually empty shelves. Yeah. And that was a real, real shock for a lot of people, because it was the first time they had seen, you know, empty shelves before. And I guess that really sparked this, you know, instinct in people of, oh, my gosh, like, food is is life, like, it's critical. And if I don't have that food, like, that does create worry Mm. um, and concern for my own well-being and my family well-being and stability.
0: Absolutely. Now, when we were referencing your uh, location where you live, in and, and, and speaking in the early part of the book about your family's move to far western New South Wales to start an organic farm, uh, you mentioned the Burke and Wills expedition. It's, it's, that's where they – you're near where they uh, eventually died, is that right, in that sort of vicinity? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, it's a very famous story. They failed yes. to take it, you know, they, they failed to take into account the survival tactics that I, I believe were on offer to them from the local Aboriginal community. Mm. Um, what, what lessons aren't we learning that we could have learned we, we from those who, you know, lived on this land for thousands of years before, prior to us?
1: Yes. So, uh, you know, we've had the the traditional owners of Australia, you know, here for tens of thousands of years. It is, you know, the the earliest existing culture um, still in existence. And that is something incredible and should be celebrated. So people have been interacting with the Australian landscape for a long, long time, and they have been living off and alongside the Australian landscape and environment, you know, harvesting foods, you know, sustaining their um, their bodies with what they can produce, plants and animal wise. But then, when we've had you know the the European explorers come through and this modern day culture of you know domineering the environment you know we are somehow above and separate from the natural world it is something that we can tame and exploit and consume and waste Um, and it is this you know dislocation from the natural world uh, that is causing us a real problem this failure to understand that we are very much um uh, you know within this this planetary system and what we do has very real impacts on it. So we need to actually look back at how different cultures and past cultures better lived and worked alongside the natural world and they had a deep sense of respect for it, a deep sense of belonging and place. and I think that's very important for us as a modern society to work on, you know, having that sense of place, that sense of belonging to the natural world um, and understanding and recognition of what we do, how we interact with the natural world does ultimately affect us as individuals and us as communities. So human health, community health is very much intertwined and linked with planetary health.
0: Do you think that that's a lesson... Um Modern Australians have never really taken on board i mean I get a sense from the book uh, and it's obviously it's just it, it's one of uh, it's a small section in, in a in a larger narrative but the the ability to bend uh the 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 livelihoods of the Aboriginal community to the land whereas modern Australia seems to be trying to amend the land to our needs yeah
1: exactly sort of um not working with nature, but sort of working against her in many ways. And obviously that's setting us up for failure because <laughs> sure. you know, the planet will win. Absolutely. Ultimately. Yeah. And so we, we have to be very conscious about, you know, are we using natural resources in the most wise manner? Are we not just, you know, exploiting and consuming at a rate where the planet can't replenish and resta- um, you know, sustain herself are we you know looking after her to make sure that we can look after ourselves? And I think people who you know potentially live in rural communities and the farmers who live much closely with the natural world um, and indigenous people who you know live alongside the landscape and a much more clo- have much a closer uh, affinity with the land they understand and they get it um, you know, how we treat the river systems will ultimately you know depend on how much water is in there how we treat the natural world will depend um, will in, impact the biodiversity its vibrancy and vitality
0: absolutely but we
1: need to you know understand that as a, as a larger society because most people live in urban environments these days but we need to make sure that we don't feel that dislocation from the natural world.
0: I wanted to mention, uh, based on that, the idea of a shifting baseline theory that you mention in your book, uh, which for listeners effectively means generations to come being born uh, to a world where the disintegration of ecosystems is the norm. And so you're not used to a a lush, flourishing river system, for example. How did you come across this theory and uh, how is – do you believe – your book is a fight against such a proposal.
1: Yes, and again, this sort of goes into the observance of timelines and actually looking back, you know, to the past um, and having appreciation of how quickly, how rapidly things are changing around us and at such a magnitude. I was having a conversation with um, my partner's grandfather, who's in his 80s, and we were talking about the the local river system, the, the Barker River, also known as the Darling River mm. in far western New South Wales. And he was telling me that as a child, he would go down to the Barker Darling River and it would be crystal clear waters. And he would sit in his tinny boat and he would see meter long cod, you know, swimming wow. up the river and amongst the roots of the river red gum trees. And nowadays, when I go to that same river, to that same location, it's a, it's a murky brown yeah. river. You know, at times there is no water in the mm. river. Um, you know, rewind a year or two ago, there were mass fish kills. There are millions of fish lying bellied up. And it's hard to even visualize that river that he witnessed at my age. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was such a short time ago, such a short time ago.
0: Yeah. So effectively, you, you are even uh, a product of this shifting baseline theory.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so as, you know, the new generations like come into these landscapes and see it in the state it is, we consider that normal. We yeah. think that this is how it should be and it is not until we listen to the stories of past generations or we you know observe the scientific evidence of how it has been we go oh my gosh like it has radically radically changed mm-hmm. um, and in most instances it's not changed for the better it's changed for the worse it's a degrading environment around us mm-hmm. and we need to stop and take notice of that understand the magnitude and the rate that has occurred and then ask ourselves Well, where are we going? What do we want it to look like in 10, 20, 50, 100 years' time and how are we going to work towards that?
0: Well, the great thing about uh, our sunburnt country is, uh, obviously, you're a scientist uh, as well as a farmer and and it it highlights a lot of... um, Uh, A lot of where we're going wrong in our practices in uh, in, in industrialization has done to the world, but you do present solutions and uh, we want to get to them uh, in more depth according to your chapters, but I just wanted to uh, gauge your uh, uh, thoughts on you know um, the unsustainable nature of farming practices on the environment. You know through methane and other gases that are produced by farm animals. Is there an argument? I'm not sure, even sure if you're aware of this, but is there an argument of these new? Have you ever heard of these genetically grown meats that are used as meat substitutes in fast food restaurants like Burger King in the? You know, in the united states is is there a future there where these lab-grown meats uh, uh can uh, become a more sustainable option for those who can't live without
1: yeah so um this is the thing with climate change because of the the complexity and the magnitude of it is that there's not going to be one or you know, just a few solutions. It's right. going to be many, many solutions to help tackle this problem. Sure, and we need to be innovative. We need to be creative, and working out you know what uh, as individuals and communities we can do to embrace certain innovations that will help shift the trajectory. Yeah, and some of these, um, yeah, lab growth meats. No, I mean, it's weird, but it's <laughs> <laughs> I think that's
0: what I mean. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so there are, there are meat substitutes, of course. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, faux meats, I guess, you know, they use lentils or, you know, plant products to make them a similar texture and flavor of meats. Or there, are, there is actually, you know, cell-based meats that are grown in a controlled environment. That's
0: what I produce. mean. Yeah, those ones. Yeah, they okay. seem to be a big hit.
1: Yeah, um, so that's obviously um, the cell-based technology is is quite a a new and emerging uh, area Mm. of research. And so it will be really interesting to see how that develops in the future and how it is supported and encouraged by us as communities. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, as you say, I mean, the innovative measures to make the food more sustainable. You say towards the end of your book um, that... Uh, such uh, the ability to farm uh, efficiently and and, and environmentally friendly can lead to a new revenue stream for farmers because local restaurants find that type of uh, practice more desirable. Is that correct?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, as people become more environmentally conscious and concerned about climate change, many people are actively looking for products, goods, services, which align with their values, which have lower carbon emissions. And people who can financially support those developments often are willing to pay a few extra dollars if they think that this goods or service aligns with their values. So as a farmer, if one can produce food and fibres and you know, have proper certification and, you know, monitoring systems in place to say, yes, you know, I am carbon neutral or I am pro-biodiversity, uh, that can actually add value to your product. And that's something that we really need to get better at here in Australia is, you know, better labelling systems, be- better tracking, celebrating really good produce um in a, in a way that is you know financially supported and i think this and i talk about this in the, the book also is properly compensating farmers you know when we walk into a supermarket and we choose the food you know are we actually putting our money towards products that are doing the best for the planet and are we encouraging this as a society because if we see advertisements on tv going you know Food prices are down, down, down. You know, you should want the cheapest possible food. Mm. Of course, that's going to damage the food system and limit the farmers' ability to properly look after the land. Mm. So, as consumers, we have to be very conscious about, um, you know, financially supporting good behaviour and giving farmers the financial resources to adapt and change practices as the climate demands.
0: Your inspiration was the film *An Inconvenient Truth*. Is that right? Yes. So yes. It was I a long time, right? Video. Long time between that movie coming out and today. Mm. Tell me about the journey of uh, uh, climate change uh, as as an accepted uh, uh, threat that's been taken seriously. Uh, in your work and your life and what you've dedicated yourself to in your vocation.
1: Sure. So, yeah, going back to the film, um, we went down to, uh, I was in my late teens and, you know, Friday night, walked down to the video shop with my family oh, yeah. my dad borrowed in- Inconvenient Truth and I was <laughs> like, oh my gosh, man, what a waste of the three-for-one deal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I remember that deal. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, and so we watched this film and it was like you know the dots were connecting in my mind it was like oh okay so this is how it works you know yeah. we're humans we're putting these emissions into the atmosphere that's destabilizing the climate changing the rainfall patterns and, but
0: you, the you, sorry to cut you off but you were already yeah. quite aware of weather patterns you were already on the farm at this stage for a number of years is that right
1: yeah exactly so we were actually experiencing the millennium drought at that time you know that that terrible drought that we experienced in much of australia between 2000 and 2010 yeah so i was on the farm observing this firsthand and you know had this growing sense of something is wrong with the environment but not fully understanding what was going on around me and it wasn't until i watched an inconvenient truth i was like ah, okay, so extreme weather events, like droughts, floods, bushfires, they are becoming more frequent and more intense because of the way humans are interacting with the world. So that film really sort of solidified what climate change was for me, and from that I then started really doing my own homework, research into what this meant for farmers now, what it means for the next generation of farmers, you know, people like myself who want to take on the family farming business, that knows we've got some really big challenges, you know, in front of us.
0: And and you, do you you believe that they, that they can there can be a, I mean obviously you believe there can be a coexistence. It's been your life's work. There's a coexistence between farming, but it has to be sustainable. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I. I am
1: so proud to work in the farming community for so many reasons. And it is such a meaningful and purposeful field to be working in because you are producing food that goes to feed and nourish people. I mean, that's an incredibly noble occupation to have. And I love working with farmers because they understand the environment and the natural world, and they live and work alongside of it. And they're constantly, you know, adjusting and adapting their practices to do it best. And many farms, they are multi-generational businesses. Mm. And they're not just businesses, but they are homes. You know, these are places that you, you you live as well as work. You know, you raise your kids, you have, you know, weddings and birthday parties, you know, <laughs> out, you know, along your riverbank or in the paddock. Um, and so they are incredibly concerned about the changes that are happening with the natural world and wanting to do more about it.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. The last chapter of your book, uh, you, you issue some practical ways. It's almost like a, a how-to guide, a pamphlet, um, practical ways, you know, the, the, the regular consumer like myself uh, can lower their carbon footprint amongst their day-to-day life. Is there any plans for even just removing that last chapter and having that distributed amongst schools and other... What's the the plans going forward in terms of getting the message out there from particularly that last chapter where it's much more practical in, in measure of how the consumer can achieve change?
1: Well, I think that's a great idea. And these are the ideas and solutions that need to be, you know, distributed and for people to know about. Because so often when we hear about the topic of climate change we feel overwhelmed and daunted and we think oh my gosh it's so big it's so complex i'm gonna sit this one out
0: you know Mm. someone else will do something about this but it's not my issue Mm. and
1: we need to flip that because this is all of our issue as you mentioned at the start of this podcast climate change affects every meal on every plate so everyone is impacted by this issue but the good news is that there are so many solutions out there. There is an abundance of things that would help get us on top of this problem, and it is across all aspects of our lives. You know, the way we transport ourselves and goods. Uh, you know, the way we consume energy and the sources of those energy. The way we eat food or waste food. Um, the the ways that. We, you know, support and encourage certain um, products or businesses or, you know, vote for politicians and have, you know, those policies and strategies put in place as nations that all influences the outcome of our planet.
0: What about stories, Anika? I mean, like, you're also a storyteller, you're a writer. A story's the key. I mean, is that, is that what shifts, you know, is that, is that the, hidden, the hidden power to changing perceptions on, on how we live our lives?
1: it definitely does help because we have had climate change science at hand for
0: decades mm.
1: but obviously you know we we often think of it as abstract and academic
0: mm. and we don't feel emotionally engaged with the science yeah but we can you know insert a
1: personal story into that science just as i have done in my book right. and translate what can seem abstract and academic into something that is local, which is personal, which is urgent. And when we form that emotional connection to an issue like this, when we feel it at our heart, that's when we create mindset change and therefore behavior change. So stories are incredibly important to do that.
0: Anika, are you hopeful?
1: Absolutely. I am hopeful. I am more than hopeful because I know that we've got the solutions out there within our grasp. It is just a matter of willpower and determination to put them in place.
0: Anika Molesworth, author of Our Sunburnt Country, which is available in all good bookstores now. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for doing the best you can to save our planet.
1: Thank you so much, Jim.